Welcome, everybody, to Season 2, Episode 22 of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. My name is Tommy Joseph. With me today is Andrew Friedman. We usually have Felix Wang with us. Uh, he's unavailable today. Um, but it's just the two of us. I am Sector Head of Technology at Hedgeye. Andrew is Sector Head of Communications at Hedgeye. Um, and this is our podcast, Unscripted Equity Curiosity, where we talk about our uh, basically the cutting room floor of all of our equity research, that things and ideas that form the background and shape and the processes behind all of our work. Uh, and we bring this to you uh, via, we tweet out the link as you might be listening from, or it's on Spotify and Apple Podcast available as well. And it's also hosted on our On the Hedge website. Um, Andrew, um, good morning. I'm gonna put you on the hot seat today, if you don't mind. Um, I have a bunch of questions, but the first question I have is, um, and and I'm and for those listening, uh, the podcast cartoon, the cartoon for today, will be posted on Twitter at Hedgeye Tech, and Andrew will retweet it so you can find it at, at Hedgeye.com. Um, and it's going to be the Disney uh, cartoon, the new cartoon that Andrew uh, flashed like super fast turnaround, awesome, amazing, great Andrew, always Andrew. Very quick to turn, jump on good things, new things, amazing. Um, uh, all right, so just walk us through <laughs> the cartoon for a second. Uh, give us the idea. Obviously, it's Bob yeah. Iger. It's you know, just give us give us thirty seconds on the cartoon creation. And the yeah, theme. I mean, look, it's uh, it's it's pretty remarkable. This is uh, it's all about uh, the return of Bob Iger, right? Um, the beloved uh, was former CEO, now coming back again, and as CEO of Disney, who transformed the company. Um, into the what we know as Disney today through uh, many uh, core acquisitions, right? Uh, whether it was Lucasfilm or the Marvel franchise, um, you know, seeing them through kind of the next phase of distribution by making all the deals necessary, um, whether as BAM Tech on the streaming side to get the technology or restructuring some of the licensing agreements uh, for some of their largest titles with Netflix uh, to get them ready for uh, what was going to be a big direct consumer push. Um, and, you know, he delayed and delayed his retirement multiple times. Um, but now um, after kind of handing the reins over to uh, Bob Chapik for a period of time um, has come back uh, as the white knight um, to uh, save the company, it seems. And that's uh, the genesis of the cartoon, which is the return of the Jedi, based on Return of the Jedi, but it's Return of the Iger. Um, and uh, it's gotten folks pretty excited here, including myself. Um, so uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, it's an awesome one. It's inspiring also how quick you were with it. Um, that's awesome, good creativity. Um, tell me what, like, I guess from a fundamental perspective, if you don't mind, like going there on Disney, um, because I think like, obviously like the way you framed it, it sounds extremely bullish, right? Like the, the person who led Disney well. Um, and I, I have to say like, I, in, in, our, in my world, it's about product and market. And um, good managers will keep the innovation curve going and keep the innovation curve aggressive. Um, so in a sense, those are good managers, but, but that's like almost like the manager empowers the innovation curve. It, in your world, 
it, it really is true that like a great CEO can be like an iconic CEO who absolutely changes the direction of the company. Um, so I kind of like it. Tell me, tell me how like tell me what this means fundamentally. Like, yeah. how does this change your view? So like, I, yeah, so I, I have so many thoughts here, and um, so cut me off or let me roll, whatever you, however this goes. Right, it's unscripted. So look. Funny enough, right? I mean, we 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 have a short bias on Disney, um, and Iger coming back didn't really change that too much. Um, the reality is that while everybody loved Bob Iger and he made a lot of the, um, great decisions um, to help, like I said, uh, Lucasfilm, uh, Marvel really uh, took some undermonetized franchises and turned them into really significant um, hits that drove lots of box office, but also really drove immense amounts of engagement with the brand um, itself. And it was brilliant. Right. Um, but he also kind of made some missteps as, along the way. Right. Um, so for example, like the whole 21st century Fox acquisition, he overpaid um, a lot for that. Um, and also you could argue that, this whole shift to streaming, um, while strategically seems like the right move to make, um, and Disney, of course, has the scale necessary and the content assets necessary, the IP, uh, to probably be the most successful linear, or, or of, of, sorry, the most successful of the legacy media companies, quote, legacy media, to make that transition. Um, but yeah, but it has very significant implications, right. For the core business, for ESPN, the cable networks that still represent, you know, over half of the company's operating income. Um, and so it was a huge bet that he kind of put the motion in place. And so in many ways, you know, when he left, right, uh, in the early part of the pandemic, he did kind of hand Bob Chapik, uh, kind of the keys to a car without gas in it and maybe even the brake lines cut. Right. So in many ways, Bob Chapik was kind of destined to fail um, in that, uh, you know, the, the structural issues facing the company were always there. Um, and there was always going to be a high level of pain as they kind of made this transition over to direct to consumer. It was just more or less where we were in the time, right, in the narrative and capital cycles with rates being at zero and everyone looking at Netflix's multiple, right? Um, where, you know, they were getting a big boost in the stock price every single time they beat Disney Plus subs because nobody believed they could do it. And all of a sudden they could. And so the world changed, investor perception changed very rapidly as a result. Um, but again, fundamentally speaking, um, you know, the, the, the core of the company, right, the core profit drivers of the company are in secular decline. And so it really comes down to whether or not you know, they can really, you know, get direct to consumer profitable at a right, um, you know, fast enough to offset those declines. And so, uh, yes, Bob Iger um, made a lot of great uh, strategic decisions. Um, he is uh, very, very focused on content, right? And, and very, is well known to have created uh, deep and lasting relationships with industry. Um, and that was something that uh, Bob Chapik was terrible at. And we kind of thought that he might be terrible at that because he wasn't loved uh, he, while he led the parks. Right. And he was a good operations guy, operationally speaking. And the parks have done well under his under his uh, leadership. Um, 
he wasn't loved. And the people kind of like the feedback from a lot of the staff was that he was kind of an asshole. Right. And so that, and that didn't change when he became CEO. And if you look at what happened, whether it was this issue with Scarlett Johansson, um, whether it was what the issue that happened in Florida, uh, it was just becoming very obvious that the company's culture, the spirit of the organization was kind of atrophying. Um, you know, that Disney magic that is, uh, and I know that's maybe, uh, you know, people roll their eyes when I say that, but for a company like Disney, that is just the, you know, the leader in storytelling, right? Uh, it, like Disney magic, um, you know, just the creative engines of that company are like the Ferrari, right, of the industry. And um, Chapik and his leadership style and the way that he also restructured the, end, uh, the, the company and taking away a lot of budgetary and operational control from the creatives and giving it to other parts of the organization um, was a bold move and one that act, but that did not, uh, it didn't rub, it rubbed the blob people the wrong way. And it was really hard for the culture to adapt. And, you know, a media company is only as strong as, oh, any company is only as strong as its people. Um, and a media company, especially like Disney is only as strong as its ability to create amazing content and that, uh, appeals to the masses. And that was the core issue with Chapik. And the company was facing another round of um, restructuring and cost cuts because of the cycle that we're in. Advertising is coming under pressure. And so we we're at this critical phase where he was already, you know, basically lost the locker room. There was, it was almost like a mutiny uh, internally, right? Um, even the CFO expressed concern. And so you had this situation where a decision had to be made immediately on what the next step was at the board level, because if Chapik was going to be able to pursue what he wanted to, it was going to have uh, lasting permanent impacts on the organization that they may or may not have been able to recover from, um, you know, within a, in a reasonable amount of time. And so the board did reach out um, to Iger and Iger accepted. And then, Look, this is the fact that, you know, they've never been able to find the right person to replace Iger. Iger is, um, you know, he is the captain. He is the leader of Disney and he is the face. And in many ways, he's inspired a lot of, you know, the, you know, everyone got behind him, right? Like he was the captain, like I said. So when he left, it was tough and people, again, didn't like Chapik. So the fact that he's back is a good thing. Um but he has his work cut out for him. He really does. And from his uh, legacy standpoint, right, he, this is a guy who's spent almost his entire career at Disney, you know, starting off in M at ABC as an intern, as a weatherman. You know. um, so it's um, something that he just could not probably let somebody else take the reins because he knows that he's the best one to do it and that the company was in trouble and the timing from him, his standpoint is now, well, he gets to preserve his legacy because he'll figure it out. He's coming at a time where the stock's down. The narrative is really negative. And so now, now it's going to be the white knight, the savior narrative, right? Where he has to solve a lot of the problems uh, financially that let's, like I said, that he, that his strategic decision-making, right. Kind of created, but yeah. he doesn't have to admit that. 
right now. He right. can come and tear up the script and build something anew, which is kind of awesome. And and it's a lesson in, you know, it's a lesson in um, perception versus reality. It's a lesson mm-hmm. in mass market appeal, mass appeal. It's a lesson, um, you know, in self-promotion and, 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 and self-branding and brand management. But he's really, really good at that. That's what he's good at. Um, and he's good at inspiring people around him and uh, to get the best out of him and be a great leader. And that's ultimately where Chapik fell down. And there was really nothing that he could do to fix that because that's just not who he was as a leader. Um, he was the exact opposite, which is why him and Iger um, very publicly just butted heads, you know, um, in many ways. So that's kind of the my take on it. Um, I know that I, I threw it a lot out there. but No, that's awesome. Uh, so it's like the classic uh, dilemma of a business where the company realizes at some point they're like, okay, 98% of our cash flows and future cash flows are dependent on X. X is in secular decline. We have to disrupt ourselves with something that is going to be potentially throw the whole model askew and maybe risk our cash flows but it's actually going to grow with this thing. Can we manage that transition and, and win? Um, and the answer is, well, I mean, like, I, I guess it depends on kind of like what you think of like the Comcast of the world who made the decision, like, let's just protect our cash flow. Um, maybe that's also a different example because they have like infrastructure in the ground that they're basically just going to try well, to I mean, and They're also forever. losing, and mind you, Comcast is losing billions of dollars and trying to grow Peacock. Right. Because they because every media company right now is realizing that um, they have to to try the future distribution model. Right. So how do we, um, you know, like preserve NBC? You know, it's it's funny on that sense. Like I was at a a town meeting um, last night um, and uh, one of the um, residents in our neighborhood uh, was speaking with one of the town officials and they were like, and they, and they mentioned that, you know, should we do some type of media campaign, right? Um, I'm not going to get into the specific issue, but there was a question of whether or not, like, this, this topic should be brought to the attention of the local news and media, right? And she said she was very, and she was probably late 30s, early 40s. And she said, it's not like I watch the news anyway, but should we do this? And, um, <laughs> and then the town officials were like, well, actually... You know, News 12 did a story on this two weeks ago. And she's like, oh, <laughs> ha, 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 ha. right. So, but, but that's like, but that's like, you know, it's a, it's a nice, it's a funny little story, but like, it's the truth, right? The reality is that like engagement with traditional linear broadcast uh, networks just aren't seeing the amount of engagement or viewership like they have. And that's a huge problem for ad revenue. It's a huge problem to, grow your brand if that's in decline, which it has been. Um, and so it needs to be pushed over to new forms of distribution where the people right. are. And that right. is- a- Even though that might be negative for cash flow in the short term. So here's my question. So Iger comes in right now. He has a chain. He stepped away for a little bit. He preserves his reputation. He got some extra gold from the process, resets his options, you know. Um, but he also gets to, like you said, he gets to um, rip up the playbook and create some kind of new playbook for the next five plus five to 10 years. Like, okay, let's imagine, like put on our thinking caps, like if you were in that boardroom, what are, you, what are we listening to Iger say? 
What is he saying? Like, it's just like, so, so I, I, this is what I think is going to happen. Um, he is going to say, we need to go as fast as we can to the future state model. The economics of the company are already under pressure. And the only solution, the only solution here is to get to that end state faster, which means taking as much of the linear content, especially sports content, that they and they're leveraging their ESPN brand and pushing that over through the direct-to-consumer streaming side. And that is going to be their pricing power. And that is going to how they get to ultimately scale with more subscribers. And that is ultimately how they become profitable. And it is, again, going and, and is going to be a painful transition. Um, but it's better to do it quickly and reset expectations, right, than it is to just go slowly and have this death by a thousand cuts, um, keep your one foot in each boat type of model. Like the, he needs to burn the boats, right? Like burn the boats. There's no going back. We understand what the market wants and this is how we get there. So I think that's going to be like one like huge thing where um, they're going to have to basically sacrifice ABC, ESPN in many ways. They're going to have to go back with, to advertisers and have these tough conversations. They're going to have to restructure talent agreements and revenue share. It's going to be so difficult to do. But here's the thing. Here's the, the key. And this is why Iger is so important here. Okay. Iger is the guy to do it. The industry loves him. Most people in the industry love him. He's really good at managing relationships, right? So if there's somebody who can make this transition and handle the politics involved to do this for the company going forward, it's him. Um, and what became very apparent, especially after the snafu with Scarlett Johansson, is that Chapik was taking a more combative approach, a very regiment, a very, very black and white approach to how this whole thing operates. And that just was not going to work. It just was not. And so Iger's the right guy uh, to do this. And it's going to take a long time and a lot of conversations to be had um, with the industry and partners. But that's it. I mean, that's the fundamental structural problem facing this company. I know people say, oh, they should sell ESPN. Oh, they need to sell Hulu. Like, that I, I that makes no sense to me. Zero sense. I, I, I get the financial engineering component of it, but like the issue right now is um, you know, they don't necessarily need capital and they need still need, you know, to have that cash flow from ESPN. Now, the I say it makes no sense. Um, the one thing that it could make sense for is if um it's almost if they do some type of like, I don't want to say sale lease back or you know, monetize a portion of ESPN to get a big cash inflow while still owning the majority of the company, right? Um, and therefore having creative control rights and all that stuff. Um, and then and then using that to delever and also giving them a little bit more of a cash buffer, right? As they make this big push into streaming, Um more so like switching that content over and essentially killing off the legacy business that um, obviously like I, I don't have, I, I don't have, I'm not like in the C-suite. Right. So I don't know all the numbers, but I could see maybe, maybe that strategically speaking that and financially speaking that that could make sense. Um, 
but I think that's what ultimately he's going to do um, because that's the only path forward. That is the structural problem. Would that be would that be like a private equity shop that takes like forty five percent of of the spin or something like that? Would that be, be worth? Is that worth like twenty billion dollars? Like, what is that worth? Like, what is the what are we talking about? Like, what do you think? Yeah, worth? I'd have to go back through the model. I mean, it's the problem is that the cash flows are in decline, right? Like, this is a, a business that's in, in terminal decline, and it would be very difficult, right? Because part of that transaction is like you're saying, okay, I need to sell a portion of ESPN, but you're using this cash to as a buffer to basically destroy the company, right? Destroy the cash flows of traditional ESPN, right? Uh, to make it more profitable on the streaming side because you're going to move all that content over, right? So then, then what? How much do you actually pay for ESPN? You basically have to think about it as like an annuity that goes to zero with a terminal value of zero. That's if the the ownership or it's sold based on like the linear cash flows. But then it gets even messier because ESPN Plus is part of the Disney bundle, right? And then what do you ascribe to the future value of, of DTC, right? So, so actually, like <laughs> in many ways, the easier solution might just be to take Disney private, like manage this transition in private and then come out public on the other side. But I, again, like that's probably more of a pipe dream than anything else because, you know, it's just too large of an organization and, Again, like I don't think the funding would cost to borrow right now. Yeah, I don't think that would work. So, like, I'm just spitballing, right? Cutting room floor, like you said, just ideas. Yeah, but like, there's really just no, there's no easy answers here. And ESPN still has a very strong brand. But I can tell you this much, right? If they take Monday Night Football, okay, and they make that exclusive to ESPN Plus, right? The only way you can get access to Monday Night Football, and is if you subscribe to the Disney Bundle they'll grow subscribers, they'll grow engagement, and they'll be able to raise price on that significantly. Can um, I ask you, like, I, I, this, is a, this is a question I'm not sure I totally understand why Disney wants to have three or, or more separate streaming services. Like, yeah. how much, first of all, Disney Plus started at $5 a month. What is it now? Like, seven, nine? What, what is the price for, I mean, we, um, the, the ad supported version is $7.99. And, um, I'm pretty positive on that. Um, and then uh, the ad um, free version, I believe is going to be $9.99. But again, anyone that's listening, fact check me on that. I just, there's a lot of streaming service prices flowing around in my head. And before streaming, what did the average household pay for TV content? Yeah, that's a great question. Monthly, probably like, you know, I don't know, more than $75 a month, I guess. $85. Yeah. So there's $85 that is no longer going to be spent on the, you know, NBC. It's money that's like $85 billion a year in aggregate. It's a huge pie. And Disney wants to get not only... And and what we've seen, by the way, this is I'll add I'll add some value for a second here. Is in technology transitions, um, it's not like if it was eighty five billion ten before. It's not still like if there's a technology transition that makes it easier to consume, faster, more able to. It's grab not eighty five billion. It's bigger, right? Because you well, no, uh, no, actually, I, yeah, no, I would actually disagree with that. Not in media. I don't think it's bigger. Um, if any, it could actually be smaller. I mean, I think part of the issue here is um, you've had 
part of the like another challenge right is that um year like the way that video and has been distributed right ever since the dawn of cable and you know you know the rise of cable in the 80s um you've seen a lot of consolidation and you've seen it monetized via affiliate fees and and through a wholesale model and also through advertising and because and it was like this great way for these media companies to just grow right oh we're going to consolidate right um bundle and then raise price on our affiliate fees 10 to 15 percent the cable companies were just going to pass on most of that price to the consumer and it was large and for a long period of time they were kind of under monetized and so they could do it and then the media companies started reaching for growth and it kind of got messy right so then all of a sudden how do you grow oh let's launch a new cable network let's launch a new media channel right and then you go through your contract renewals with charter comcast and you say well we just launched this network right and they're like and then and then they force that onto the cable companies right which either the cable companies either has to subsidize that or that gets passed again on through a price increase to the consumer because they're adding that channel that really nobody wanted but the reality is that they're like well if you want abc right if you want sports you kind of have to take this too and so that resulted in i think you know the where the over earning concept is right where the industry is effectively over earning because they just price things too high and then you start to see the engagement declines occur with the rise of streaming and so we and that's the whole cord cutting concept and then enter netflix enter netflix which basically came in and said we're going to disrupt the whole industry right and offer this incredible value proposition by giving you all this content right we're going to lose a ton of money we're going to give you this huge consumer surplus we're going to charge like incredibly low rates. Um, and they did that for a decade plus. And guess what? They trained the customer. This is what this is worth. That this is what it's worth, right? It's, it's, and, and, and everyone was always looking at the bull case on Netflix was like, Hey, look at the bundle, look at the bundle, look at the bundle, look what they're charging. Netflix has so much pricing power. And my point of contention was always like, no, the bundle is losing subscribers. It's a, everyone hates it. It's a terrible value proposition. It's not just because people hate their cable companies. It's mispriced. And that's why you're seeing declining unit economics and declining share, bar none. So, so you know, the ultimate price point is not going to be $85. Now, it may be $85 in the sense that people start managing multiple subscriptions, right? Like, hey, I'm going to stack my subscriptions, you know, and ultimately get to 50, 75, $80 a month through direct to consumer, more a la carte, right? Through your app stores, Roku, Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and manage it that way. Um, there's also going to be a lot of new broadcast uh, distribution in the form of fast services like Pluto TV or the Roku channel. Um, but I, I do disagree that um, with, the, with the notion, at least in the media world, uh, that this is some larger addressable market at the end of the day, if anything, I think it's actually probably a less profitable market, a smaller profit pool that it um, point to point um, than it was in the linear heyday. And if only because you're going from a wholesale distribution model, which is very low customer acquisition costs, very fully distributed, very low, a very high gross margin, right, to the media companies, to a direct consumer model that is much higher subscriber acquisition costs, much higher churn with very questionable with with no clear like new distribution model for them to leverage and oh by the way 
Like what's a huge part of the problem of the bundle? Well, the sports content represents most of the cost of the bundle, right? And so, so the people that, um, so the way that that becomes cost effective, right? For pay TV is that the people that like the long tail of people that like the 80% that don't really care about sports or the 50% that don't care about sports, but still subscribe to the bundle are subsidizing the cost and that value to the people that actually care a lot about sports that it would actually probably be willing to pay a lot more, right? To watch their Red Sox, to watch their Celtics games, right? Like that's like the price point on that is much higher. And there's been no way to have that price discrimination occur again in the wholesale model, given the way everything's structured. And so that's why I say sports content is so key to driving this next phase of profitability, because it actually allows, like in the direct consumer model, you could in theory be able to, uh, you know, focus and I don't want to say price discriminate because that's like antitrust, like that's not the right word, but like be able to, you know, leverage like that core user that wants to pay more, that is able to pay more for that content. Um, where And whereas uh, in, you know, linear wholesale, uh, you know, you weren't necessarily able to do so. So I know I just threw a lot out there, but no, no, I, okay, okay. Out there. I have very, very strong feelings. No, no, on this, is great. this is great. This is great. One point of clarification is, uh, is how much, how much revenue does Disney streaming, Disney streaming, Hulu and, and ESPN plus have to get, like, what's the streaming side of Disney, like run rate revenue, roughly rough. If you, um, you just take a zone. I, I, you know, I, I really should know this off the top of my head, but like, okay. Well, I was going to say, like, cause like Netflix revenue is over 30 billion. Right. Yeah. So like, I mean, and still growing. So it's, and they're, it's not impossible to think but about that's world to... that's worldwide right that's oh true. and you were saying 85 billion is just us yeah i'm saying 85 billion is just us just us i got it I I mean, got it. and okay. so and so caveat my statement by saying if you believe if you believe that um you know global internet distribution um that you know that streaming opens up markets um for premium video content that were previously unaccessible globally by virtue of just how video distribution was like, so in India and, and other markets, right. That are very mobile first that never went through the premium video phase, right. In that sense, globally, I could, I could see how the take the global TAM is larger. Um, so my commentary on there is, is really mostly tied to the U S market and also developed markets and across Europe, but those are also, you know, that's where you make money. You know, that's, those are your, those are your most profitable markets, biggest advertising markets. So there is a, there's something to be said about like the expanding global reach, but again, like that is more in the world of where like YouTube plays, right? Like, cause that's free ad supported. Um, so Disney's, um, uh, let's see, direct to consumer uh, did uh, 20 billion in revenue this last fiscal year. So, so that and, and and Netflix was was thirty billion. So that last year, so that's so that's fifty billion last year worldwide, and still growing, obviously. And that's only two players, but well, they're both um, they're both yeah. So they're both um, that's both global. worldwide. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, it's, I mean, okay, that was just a point of clarification. And then and then the other thing I wanted to ask you, this is amazing. I know we have to wrap up in a minute here, but um, so this was one of the most fun ones we've done in a long time. Um, so, okay, so so Iger, so he's gonna he's gonna push the company. But I, I had another point of clarification: Why does Disney want to manage 
like multiple streaming subscriptions. Why have Disney Plus and Hulu and ESPN Plus and I don't know, maybe they have another one even. So like, this is why not just be Netflix? Like just yeah, have or, a super or app? One, why not all, all be under one brand, Disney Plus? Like and everything's there, Hulu and everything. It's all Oh there. man, it is such a, it is a function of like everything. It's kind of a function of history and how everything kind of came together. Yeah. Right? Um, so that's it in terms of like partly with Hulu. Um, it's also kind of a function of rights agreements um, in terms of like what side of the house actually has the rights to distribute what, right? There's, it's, you know, if you ever need to understand why somebody did something, just look at the contracts, right? And think through like, like talk to the attorneys, like think through something, how something's structured. Um, <clears throat> and so part of it's just like taking the pieces that they had together and trying to, you know, leverage that in a way. It's also bundling, right? So, you know, bundling works. And I know like people say that like they don't like it necessarily, but the reality is like there's a reason why people bundle. And it's not just like, mm-hmm. you know, Disney. So you're saying more. so you're saying this is the new bundle meaning like in the future instead of when somebody wants to well, sign up for Disney so, Plus for 12 bucks a month, they'll they'll offer them 16 bucks a month for all three. Yeah, but let me let me just add on to this point here um because i knew you know we have to we have a hard stop in a little bit but it's important it's a great question so um it's all about share of engagement first of all that's ultimately what drives your pricing power right so you know if you think about it holistically whether or not they have one app or three apps um you know having um you know but they have to advertise and support each one and 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 you have to acquire yeah i mean the churn rate so so for example the churn rates for the bundle if you subscribe to hulu disney plus and espn plus are significantly lower than the churn rates for standalone disney plus interesting okay so there's a there's a huge churn benefit there in the way that it's structured and priced there's also economies of scale to, to the consumer right where you pay less right uh on a per unit basis for getting all three hence bundling um so, you know, that's a, that's a big factor. Historically, there was also the advertising component, right, where they need to grow an advertising business. And Hulu uh, was advertising based and they didn't have Disney Plus be ad supported, right? They didn't have the ad tech uh, integrated on the back end. So there was those, those types of restrictions. Now, Disney Plus is ad supported now. So maybe that changes, um, <clears throat> you know, but, but it's also, um, you know, managing different price points, right? Being able to offer that intro rate because people still want to have like an a la carte, but it's branding too, right? I mean, the type of content, like Disney Plus has a specific brand. If you go on there, you have piles, right? It's family friendly. There's, and that was another issue that like, you know, Iger was very focused on. It's like, you know, they have the Fox assets, right? Where do you distribute this content? Where, right? Hulu is more adult focused. The Fox content gets distributed through Hulu. Disney Plus is very family focused, right? Marvel, Star Wars, Nat Geo, um, you have the, you know, the, the uh, Pixar, the, the specific title tiles there. In Europe, they actually embedded their star uh, general entertainment service as a separate tile in Disney Plus, right? Because of they wanted to leverage the Disney Plus, the Disney brand, but also the star brand because they didn't have a Hulu. They don't have rights to Hulu's not international. So there's also that factor as well. Um, and going forward, look, I think there's in the brain of the consumer, whether this is right or wrong, right? Having three separate services, uh, you probably with very distinct brand and value propositions, sports, broadcast, general entertainment, live TV, adult content, 
Um, and then uh, Disney Plus, which is like core franchises, right? It has a different, it falls in your brain to the consumer in, in different ways. And therefore, I think it allows them to, it gives them pricing power ultimately than just by saying, you know, I'm, I, I'm paying $30 a month for all three, right? Versus just saying, I'm only paying $30 a month for Disney Plus, yeah. right? As, as a standalone. Now, there's definitely synergy potentials, right? And cross engagement opportunities. Right. So, for example, if I'm in Disney Plus, right, and I'm and I see and and I, the UX and the discovery is is well there, then I could possibly be fed content from Hulu, right, or ESPN within the same app that I'm in, right, that I may not otherwise engage with or see, right, um, because I would actually have to close out of the Disney Plus app. I would have to open up Hulu, close out of Hulu, go to ESPN, right. Um, so there's there's way that they, and that's, that's really impactful in terms of driving engagement because they want to keep you in that ecosystem. Now there are tools that they could do that. They could leverage audience development tools from the platforms like Roku has, um, you know, they could do that from a marketing standpoint. They could also probably do it on the back end, right? Where there's a section where if you're in each single app, right, you could easily transfer or watch content while also maintaining this, the three tier, like the three branding elements between the three services, um, but there's a big, there is a camp out there that says that they should just roll everything up into one super app and call it Disney plus, um, and then maybe start bundling it in with like, you know, Hey, if you're a Disney plus subscriber, you get a free ticket to the theme parks every single year. Right. We've seen that happen in actually some of like Nesson, for example, started doing that with their direct to consumer streaming service for the Red Sox. Hey, you're going to pay us a lot of money for this service a year, but we're going to give you three tickets right, to get to a Red Sox game that has a $300 value that subsidizes half the cost or whatever. I'm, I'm making up numbers, but it's the same concept. And so there's ways that the media companies and sports leagues, they can use streaming uh, and with other parts of the business to drive value above and beyond just like the pure video content. Um, but again, it comes down to like this core transition, financially speaking. And so it's like, I love Disney. I'm an Iger fanboy, self-proclaimed. Like, I know what he did. I see what he's doing. But I'm also a financial analyst and I understand what's going to drive the stock price and numbers, you know. And so I could say that I love the fact that Iger's coming back. You could tell how excited I am. I love yeah. the media. I love yeah. the media space. I love it so much. It's so much fun. Um, it's been a total dumpster fire. Um, and we've been on the right side, thank God, in, in the industry call and the stock calls for a lot of this. Um, but uh, and, and so I'm excited because I really just kind of like I thought I actually I kind of just left Disney kind of for dead in the back of my mind. Like there I knew that I just didn't see what was going to like where their future was. Right. And yeah, you that, can maybe but, see it. Yeah, that's that's actually the the ding, 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 ding. If you heard that, that's uh, telling me that I have to. Uh, hop on a client call. So, all right, um, Andrew, thank you so much. That was awesome. Uh, this has been unscripted season two, episode 22. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. You're getting the Saturday morning. So happy post Thanksgiving. <laughs>
Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedge subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedge Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.